theyeshiva.net. Thank you so, so much for your very kind remarks, your beautiful words of chizuk and inspiration, your very gracious introduction. And um, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to be here with all of you, tuning into us wherever you are, of course, Cleveland and uh, all over America and all over the world, wherever you're tuning in from. I know that usually you have the annual Chizuk mission with uh, so many special women going to the Holy Land. But as uh, Rebetzin Feld said in the beginning this year, the plans have changed. So this is uh, some type of substitute, but I guess we'll utilize the opportunity to create an internal Chizuk mission, which is sometimes more challenging and yet more transformative when we can go inward. I want to thank Eish HaTorah of Cleveland. I want to thank Rabbi and Rebetzin Feld for this special invitation, special opportunity to be able to speak to all of you. And of course, pay tribute this evening for the first yard site of Ruchama Chayefruma, Bas Rebdoiv Pinchas, Bistritsky, Zechreinel of Racha. May her gracious memory serve as an eternal source of blessing and inspiration to her husband, Mati, to all of her kinderlach, all of her children, the entire family, and all of her numerous friends, relatives, people whose lives she touched so deeply, even beyond her family and community, and all, all of the Jewish people. My family goes back with the Bistritsky family uh, more than one and two generations, so I am really privileged to be able to be a part of this event in tribute of such an extraordinary matriarch, woman, a human being of vision, of selflessness, of nobility, and of kindness. And despite her very untimely and tragic passing, continues to inspire, continues to exude her light, her love, her energy, not only on her immediate family, but also on the larger Jewish community, So I asked Mrs. Feld, what do you want me to talk about tonight? And she said, I want you to talk about the fact that we are living in extraordinary times. And I right away liked that. Instead of, uh, instead of uh, focusing on negative, negativity and pessimism, the Rebetzin, the legendary Rebetzin of ancient Cleveland, told me, help us realize that we're living in unbelievably extraordinary times with tremendous opportunity, and help us all develop, in her words, a consciousness of geula, of redemption, and the ability to be able to live with Ein Oid Mulvadai. So, that was a tall order. <laughs> But So I wouldn't argue with such an invitation and such a powerful topic and perhaps the most relevant topic to discuss in our times. Nobody questions the fact that we are living in very, very interesting, intriguing, perplexing and extraordinary times. Any way you spin it, any way you twist it. If I would have told you last year in January or February, not last year, this year, if I would have told you in January or February 2020, just last year, Hanukkah, that in just a few months, everything will change. 7.7 7 
billion people's lives will change. Every school will be shut down. Every shul will be shut down. And not because of a third world war. And not because of chas v'shalom, a nuclear attack. And not because Khalila a massive terrorist attack. And not because of some global crisis. Some, not because of some global crisis that uh, will paralyze all of us. But rather because of this, a virus the size of 125 nanometers, you would dismiss me as... Uh, as Meshuggah, completely, completely insane. And yet, this is what unfolded. Coupled with the unrest, coupled with divisiveness in America, coupled with uh, crazy elections, any way, again, you spin it, insane, insanity, (laughs) absolute insanity. A lot of people are worried. A lot of people are afraid. A lot of people are confused. There's a lot of uncertainty. And that's what I want to address I think that as Jews, as Jews who are committed to Yiddishkeit, Shemri Teiru Mitzvah, Jews who strive and yearn to carry the baton, the torch of Judaism, and to bequeath it to our children, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren, to bequeath it to our friends, to our communities, and to bequeath it to the world. Hanavi quotes Hashem, I have created you, I have made you into a light unto the nations. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, let all the nations of the world see that the name of God is conferred upon you and they will be in awe of you. The role of the Jew is not just to be isolated in a spiritual cocoon, although that is sometimes very necessary and a prerequisite for our development and growth. But our ultimate role is to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth to change the world, as we say three times a day in Aleinu, to repair the world, Tikkun Olam, that word became very popular, but some people are missing the last two words, Tikkun Olam, to heal the world, to, to, to repair the world. And there is perhaps no greater moment, at least what I remember in my lifetime, perhaps in a very long time in history, that we, have a unique opportunity, both in terms of ourselves, our children, our families, our communities, the larger Jewish community, and not only that, the larger world. Yes, it's very easy to surrender and to resign. It's easy to surrender to mediocrity. It's easy to experience resignation, despair, depression, melancholy, sadness, and the key word today, anxiety, stress. A lot of anxiety out there, and you know what? It's very easy. You read the newspapers, you read the websites, you watch the clips that come to you. I'm not talking about my clips. My clips don't cause you anxiety. At least I hope they don't. But a lot of other clips, and they can drive you mad, and they can cause a lot of lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, and a lot of people are tormented. Then there are the personal challenges. A lot of people have lost loved ones. Their families have been shaken to the core. A lot of people have experienced severe illness. A lot of tragedy, there's a lot of crises in families, there's a lot of emotional and psychological and spiritual and religious and social and mental and financial challenges that people are enduring. And as is always the case when we face such moments, the first step and the first law is always empathy. We have to be able to be there for each other. We have to be able to support each other. We have to be able to, every single day, dedicate some time to reach out to reach out to family members, to friends, to former friends, to reach out to people we know and also to people that don't know. 
offer love, offer a supportive shoulder, offer somebody they can speak to, they can cry with, they can laugh with. This is a time to connect. This is a time to unite. It's a time to get rid of all divisiveness and fragmentation. Hashem is burning the walls of Golos. The Welt von Golos brennen. The walls of Golos are burning. God is burning and destroying the walls between us. We must make that happen. Get rid of the walls. Get rid of the fragmentation. Get rid of the divisiveness. Get rid of the pettiness. Get rid of the smallness. Not because we're giants and we don't have a Yetzirah and we don't have any challenges, but because there are moments in history that call for much deeper resources. These are moments that try men's and women's souls, to paraphrase Thomas Paine. These are moments that bring out the worst in people or the best in people. These are moments that bring out pettiness and a lot of anxiety, and these are moments that bring out greatness, leadership, idealism, resilience, faith, confidence, the ability to empower people. And you and I have to choose where are we going to stand at this moment in history. As I always tell my students, we could complain from today till tomorrow about a 100,000 things, but you have to make one decision. This is the most important decision. Am I going to be part of the problem or am I going to be part of the solution? There's no other option. The multiple choice of life is only two answers. Either I'm part of the problem or I'm part of the solution. You and I have to choose every day which side am I going to be on. Am I going to be part of the problem or am I going to be part of the solution? I say to you, great women of Israel, you know what it means not to be part of the problem, but to be part of the solution. The first step is to be able to challenge, not to succumb to our anxiety. They once asked a Jew, why do you worry so much? You know what he answered? I wrote it down. Worrying is my way of praying for what you don't want to happen. This was a very profound insight. In a way, when I'm worrying, I'm almost, I'm almost praying for what I don't want to happen. I am allowing my brain to create energy that I'm not interested in. Now, worrying is normal, so don't start worrying about the fact that you worry, right? You know when you start feeling guilty about feeling guilty? Somebody once said, what is a Jew? Somebody who, when he doesn't feel guilty, he starts blaming himself. So now don't start worrying about the fact that you worry. We worry because we're normal, we're human. But we have to realize our power to be able to confront ourselves and say, I am bigger than my worries. I will define my worries. My worries won't define me. A wise woman once said, every evening I turn my worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. (laughs) Why should I have a sleepless night? He's going to be up. Let him deal with it. Give it away. Somebody once said, I quote, Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. Or, worry pulls tomorrow's cloud over today's sunshine. Finally, one of my favorites, worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. How do we go into a different space today? Change begins inside. They tell us, an old anecdote about a Zen Buddhist monk who came to Borough Park. 
He's been meditating for 50 years in silence. But he came to Borough Park one day, pre-corona. And he's walking on 13th Avenue. He's starving. He hasn't eaten probably in 40 years. Some meals intermittently. And he sees, uh, you know, he sees a hot dog store. So he goes in and uh, he orders a hot dog. And uh, the fellow, the Jew, Jewish fellow, gives him a frankfurter with, with ketchup and mustard and sauerkraut, whatever other healthy accompaniments. And then the, the Zen Buddhist monk pays. He gives him $20. So the Jew takes the $20 and puts it in the register. And the man is waiting, but he's used to being silent. He doesn't say a word. So after five minutes, the Jew says, can I help you? What are you looking, what are you waiting for? So the monk says one word, change. Change. Jew looks at him and says, change? Change comes from within. It's an old joke, but the message has something to it. When we talk about change, it always comes from within. It always starts from within. I'd love to change my kids. You'd love to change your daughter-in-law, no? You'd love to change your son-in-law. Some of you would love to change your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your mother, your father, your brother, the sister, your rabbi, your community, your school, your principal, your teacher, your employer, your employee. You want to change the world. It's a great ambition. But all real change, real change begins right here inside. And it's not just a cliche, you know, you want to change the world, change yourself. It's also very genuine. Because we're all interconnected. And the influence each person has is infinite. And to recognize that, I have to be able to have the courage to strip my own layers and my, get, excavate my own toxicity and really create change from within. And if people doubt that, just think about what happened not long ago, less than a year ago. One individual man living in Wuhan, China, went out one evening to buy some food for his family. As is the custom in Wuhan, he also bought a bat. He came home. He sneezed. And a few months later, the whole world was on lockdown. If you would have asked this individual, do you have influence over global events? He would say, me? I can't even influence my neighbor. Little did he know, that his sneeze, or maybe his touching a doorknob, or maybe his giving a kiss to somebody, or shaking a hand, changed the whole world, literally. If this is true with a virus, how much more true, how much more so when it comes to goodness, holiness, godliness? Every single human being has an incredible, incredible power but I have to be able to believe in it, to tune into it, to actualize it. I have to understand what lay inside of me, who I really am. And here we come to really our theme, and that is our role today and our opportunity today. And maybe our greatest mission today is to be able to breathe and live that essential Jewish truth, the basis of all Yiddishkeit, of all Judaism, the famous words of Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jewish people in Sefer Dvarim and Deuteronomy, twice in Parshas Vashan, and he says it twice, Ein Oid, Ein Oid Milvadeh, which means there is nothing outside of Hashem. And what Moshe Rabbeinu meant with those words, as explained in so many Svarim, 
is that you are never, ever a victim of any circumstances. Rather, every single moment, every experience, every encounter, every observation, every part of my journey in life contains within it divine meaning, divine goodness, divine purpose. Yes, some journeys are painful. Some journeys are joyous. Some journeys are mysterious. Some journeys are clear. Some journeys are unfathomable. Some journeys are comprehensible. Some journeys defy our imagination and our expectations. They are curveballs that we did not anticipate. Some journeys are part of the trajectory of our lives. But whether it's this or that, the journey is always an opportunity, a gift from God that was given to me and that was given to you in this moment, in this place. Every single soul was dispatched on a mission, placed in a particular home, in a particular moment in history, in a particular environment. Each of us was given the gifts and virtues that we possess by nature and by nurture. We were also given our vices and our challenges from nature and nurture. I can view my package and say, I'm a Nebuch case. And nobody will judge me, nobody will judge you. Or you could say, I was sent on a mission by the creator of the world who loves me infinitely, has given me all the resources to be able to bring light into every situation. Some situations are not easy. Some situations are difficult. But I was given a mission to bring light into that situation. Many of you, start. all of us, wake up in the morning and we start our day with those famous words, which is basically a statement. I thank you, Eternal King, for giving me back my soul with a lot of compassion. And your faith in me is great. That is really welcoming my soul for another day and saying, before I get out of bed, I am committed to live a day that is permeated with oneness and harmony and unity, not a day of fragmentation and self-doubt and self-shame and self-loathing and self-depreciation and anxiety and worry and stress and doubting myself and telling myself how terrible I am and how bad I am and how bad this is. These are all thoughts that come into me, but they will not define my day. We know many of us, after Maidani and after we do the basics, we begin the day with a cup of coffee. Kave. Somebody once said, Kave in Yiddish is coffee. Kave al Hashem, hope to God. But one of the great Rebbes once said something, a very nice insight. He says, why did coffee become like an integral part, you know, of, of, of the Jewish tradition? You know, you wake up in the morning, you have a coffee. Some people before davening, if they needed for davening, some people after davening, whatever the situation is. And he said, look how we make a coffee. How do you make a coffee? He says, you take coffee beans. It's bitter. Coffee beans are bitter. Many people put in a little sugar, a little honey, a little maple syrup, a little cinnamon, whatever you put in to make it a little sweeter. So you have the coffee that's bitter, and then you have the sugar or the splendor or the syrup or the honey that's a little sweet or very sweet. Then you have water, it's hot, hot water. And then you put in a little milk, which is cold. So you have bitter coffee, sweet sugar, hot water, and cold milk. If you're not drinking dairy, you'll put in a little soy milk, or a little almond milk, or a little rice milk. 
I don't know, rice milk, maybe almond milk, or soy milk, or some other milk, but cold. As we wake up, we say, listen, the day will have sugar moments, moments that are very sweet. The day might also have coffee beans, coffee moments that are bitter. The day may have some very hot moments. The day may have cold moments. The day may have things that can scorch us. They may have things that cool us off. But together, together, they become part of our coffee. We pick up the cup and we say, Baruch HaTahashem Alekeinu Melech HaOilam, Shahakal Niyabidvare. Everything came into existence from His Word, including the coffee bean, and the sugar, and the water, and the milk. Shahakal Niyabidvare. It's all divine energy. It's all a divine opportunity, a divine mission. It's all one big kave, one big coffee, kave el Hashem. This doesn't mean that I always, I want bitter coffee beans. What it means is that I'm never a victim. My soul was brought into this place in order to unite all of these forces together and reveal the oneness. Everything came into existence through Hashem's word, through Hashem's energy. And that's really what it means to live with a consciousness of Gu'ula, to live with a consciousness of redemption. What does redemption mean? What does Gu'ula look like? The Navi says in Yeshaya, when Mashiach comes, The wild beasts won't hurt each other and won't hurt others because the world will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. What does that mean in our personal life? It means that all fragmentation, all divisiveness, anger, arguments, it comes because I do not realize how free I am. I don't realize my godless, my greatness, my infinity. I am traumatized. And therefore I become so restricted. I operate from a very narrow and restricted place. But what if you and I can open ourselves up to the truth? That you are a chelik eleka mimal mamash. Your soul is a piece of God. It's a fragment of the divine. It's a ray of infinity. It's a spark of godliness. Enclosed in your body, which is sacred, which is also divine and holy. And sent on a mission into this world. Even if I have challenges, but those challenges don't define me. And they could never destroy my divine core. My core always remains invincible, wholesome, confident, potent, powerful, full of joy, possibility, optimism. There's not an experience in the world, even if it's a difficult experience, that can snuff out your divine vibrancy. Just like nobody can destroy God's Hashem's confidence. Nobody can destroy God. Nobody can take away His inner core. The same is true with you. You're a mal. Nobody can take that away from you. And I can always go back to that space. And every morning when I wake up, I want to, and you want to go to that space. And you say, and you want to tell yourself, today I'm going to operate from that space. May need a few minutes of meditation, of davening, of learning, however you do it. Taking care of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually. But you tune into that oasis, a transcendental oasis where you are invincible. And that's where you operate from. And even if I'm facing a difficult moment, it's part of my kaveh Hashem. It's part of my kaveh, it's part of my shlichus, it's part of my mission. The Navi also says in Yeshaya, 
when Mashiach comes, v'nigla kvoid Hashem, v'ro chalbosar yachtov kifi Hashem diber. The divine energy will be revealed, and every single existence will see that the truth of the world is Hashem's words, meaning we will be able to perceive the DNA of the universe. We will have microscopic eyes that will be able to allow us, that will allow us to perceive the underlying spiritual harmony of the universe. Already today, as science and physics progress over the generations, we are developing the instruments and the tools to be able to detect levels of reality that we never imagined existent, existed. Even viruses and bacteria and microscopic organisms, fungi, etc., were not known until the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s because we never had the tools to be able to detect their existence. So we attributed pandemics and all these things to other factors. As science progresses, the Rebbeinu Shlelem allows us to see much deeper layers of reality. And what's the ultimate layer of reality? To be able to see that everything is Ruchnius. All of God, the Balatanya writes in Shara Yichud chapter 3, incredible words, I quote, If our eyes would be microscopic, meaning if our eyes would be able to perceive reality, we would all see that the Gashmias, the Chumrias, Ha'olam is Ayin, the Ephes Mamash. We would see that the coarse, dense materialism of the world is non-existent. What do we mean it's non-existent? It's just a manifestation of the divine energy. It's the way our eyes can detect divine energy. Just like we don't see all of the small, tiny millions, trillions, billions, zillions, sectillion atoms that are moving around in this uh, table or in this uh, mouse. <laughs> I don't see it. I don't see it. My eyes can only perceive what my retina can perceive according to its chemistry and what my brain can interpret. There's certain sounds I can't hear. There's certain colors I can't even perceive. You have to have the kalim. You have to have the tools to be able to perceive reality. Well, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as is. Divine oneness, infinity. And take a look at a coronavirus, a little creature. I told you the size of 125 nanometers. You can fit hundreds of millions and billions of these viruses on a pencil eraser. And one of them shut down the whole world. Malls and stadiums and, and sports clubs and, and bars and restaurants and schools and courthouses, industries, businesses. A little tiny virus. The whole big world that we relied on you see, I am Ephes. It becomes I am Ephes. What's the, what is reality? Reality is Elokus. Reality is godliness. Ein Eid Malvada. This doesn't mean there's no physical world. Of course there's a physical world. But it means that the physical is essentially a conduit for the spiritual energy. This is a time when we are called upon to be able to open ourselves up to these truths and therefore start breathing them. Start internalizing them. Start living them. It means the way you treat yourself. You're not a piece of meat and potato. You're not a traumatized Nebuch case. You're not a victim of circumstances. You're not even just a struggling or bitter person. You are divine energy in this world. That's who you are. You are an ambassador of God. You are a princess, a daughter of Hashem. It's the way we look at others. It's the way we look at our children, the way we look at our loved ones, the way we look at other people. It's the way we view the world. And it's the way we view our interaction 
with the world. Now, this does not mean that there's no distractions, there's no stress, there's no other thoughts, there's no experiences that we have to overcome. But the moment you can identify who you really are and you can quarantine, pun intended, your other images of who you are, everything changes. So you know, very often in life, what happens is we... We crave love. As children, as young children, we all want love. We want connection. We want to feel seen, soothed, safe, secure. We want to have a sense of safety in our world. But very often, and this probably happens to so many of us, maybe most of us, maybe almost all of us, there are disappointments, small disappointments and big disappointments. As little children, we're so trusting. Our hearts are open, completely open. We are trusting, we rely. We rely on our parents, on our siblings, on our community, on our school, on our teachers, on our loved ones. But then there are many disappointments, consciously or unconsciously. It's not anybody's fault necessarily. Sometimes it is people's fault, but not necessarily. And what happens? We close our heart. But we crave that love, we crave that connection. So we have to compensate. And we all learn how to compensate well. Probably one of the most effective forms of compensation is, instead of seeking love, we seek attention. We seek validation. I want attention. You want attention. You want people to notice you. And I will do whatever it takes for people to notice me in the way I need them to notice me. This is where my fake ego comes from. It's a compensation for the love, for the attachment I really need. But that original love that I was looking for, I'm not getting because I don't want to be vulnerable. So instead, I compensate it with trying to get attention instead of love. There's a problem. It doesn't satisfy me long-term. It doesn't satisfy you long-term. Because, as you know, real people understand, attention satisfies you at the moment you're getting it. After that, you're left with even a greater black hole and a deeper void. Right when you're getting it, it feels good. But after that, I gewalt. You become even more empty and more desperate and therefore I'm binging more and I'm numbing the pain more and I'm escaping from the pain more and I become more dysfunctional. Why? Because I am not really filling the void, the search for love, the yearning for real, real connection, which is very hard. It takes a lot of vulnerability. Here is where Gula consciousness can help all of us. What Gula consciousness says is, that no matter any disappointment you ever had, you are filled with healthy vibes. You are divine. And therefore, your neshama is untarnished, unsoiled, unscathed, and not affected by the disappointments of life. And in that soul, there are infinite reservoirs of divine love that want to flow through you. But you and I have to open ourselves up to it. Fear is one of the most powerful enemies, the fear of vulnerability, the fear of what's going to happen when they see what's really happening inside. It's the shame, it's the guilt. That comes from many, many years. We're not even aware of it. We often start living so superficially. We're not even aware of how superficially we live. You know how sometimes people are in conversations with others, and the conversations are so superficial, and you want to say, like, let's get real. I was... uh, 
not this Shabbos, I was at a, last Shabbos, I went to a conference. The name of the conference was called Kesher Nafshi. It was in the Catskills. A few hundred parents were there, couples, a few hundred couples. And uh, Rabbi Hillel David Schlitter from the Mayat Zedeli Atari from Agudas Yisrael was there. The Satmar Rosh Hashiva was there. Baba Vimanal was there. A lot of prominent Rabbonim, a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of therapists, social workers, and a lot of parents who are struggling with their children. And I have been to many uh, Shabbatons, <laughs> as uh, Mrs. Schwabel said. I have been, including with the Schwabels, enjoying uh, her husband and son uh, singing, beautiful Zmiris and Egunim. And I have been to many conferences, and I have been to many retreats and seminars and workshops, at least before Corona. Since Corona, I have not been to many, very, very few. I've been home. We're communicating through Zoom and other methods. So, you know, and, and, and they're all meaningful. They're all powerful and they're all meaningful. They're all inspiring. But because all the people there were dealing with something very serious, there was very little, there was no, I didn't see ego. I saw vulnerability. The tears were coming so easily. And the honesty of people was unbelievable. So there was somebody there, a good friend of mine, who's, uh, you know, a macher, very good, close friend of mine. And uh, he's very well versed with the Jewish world. And he's a publicist. And he comes over to me. And he, very emotionally he says, why can't we be honest like this on a daily basis? Why are we all walking around with so many masks? Why, why, why? He says, look how refreshing it is. I didn't have an answer to this question. But that's the beginning of Gula consciousness. We take off our masks. We wear masks because I don't want to be hurt. I don't want you to backstab me. You don't want me to backstab you. I don't want you to judge me. You don't want me to judge you. I want to get attention. I want to get validation. I want to fit in. So we live in masks. We don't live in an oasis of love. We live in an oasis of cover-ups, of masks. It's so painful for the soul. So you're going to say, Rabbi Waiwai, very nice. So I should be the first Meshuggah to take off my mask? <laughs> you want me to be the first Meshuggah to take off my mask? Good question. Let me tell you exactly how this works. People are so desperate to take off their masks. The moment you and I will have the courage to start taking off our masks, it will travel like wildfire. Don't wait for others in order to look to find what you're looking for. You become the source of what you're looking for. You become the source of love. You become the source of inspiration. When you go into the market, when you go into the grocery store, when you go into the shul, when you go into the school, when you go to the wedding, the upshanish, the bris, the pidin aben, the vachnach, the shabbos, wherever you go, or when you're in your kitchen on the phone, you become that person who's filled with enoid malvadai, the person who's filled with love, when somebody sees you, they'll see on you. You're not wearing masks. You're filled with love and you're ready to give it. You know what happens? You start attracting love. What I give comes back to me. The world is a mirror. Right? Positive thoughts create positive realities. Thoughts of love create love. You become that source. I become that source. You and you and you and you become that source. And you know what happens? The world becomes one. So you tell me, 
but I'm dealing with this problem and my husband has these issues and I have these issues and my kids have these issues. <laughs> You're sitting here and it's easy for you to preach. And I'm not preaching. What I say to you is as follows. When you have anxiety, when you have situations that you're facing, Ein Oid Malvadai doesn't mean that we're naive and we're living in La La Land and everything is dandy. It means that anxiety is an alarm clock. It means I don't have to be afraid of anxiety. It's a cover-up to teach me about myself. When I'm anxious about something, when I'm feeling angry about something, it's a secondary emotion. I have to peel away the layers. It's making me aware of something. Something I have to work on. Something I can grow with. Something I can find in myself. In other words, it's an opportunity for light. Even the darkness is an opportunity for growth and for light. You don't have to run away from any part of you. A consciousness of Geula means that I don't have to amputate any part of my identity, any part of my soul, any part of my mind, any part of my emotion. I can feel it. I can breathe it. I can notice it. I can even respect it. Tune into it. Create space for it. What it does mean is, I don't succumb to paralysis. I don't surrender to mediocrity. I don't become completely defined by the anxiety. I see it as a layer that is covering up some deep divine spark. It is there to teach me something about me. It wants to help me go to a deeper place. Says the Balatanya, Menasa comes from the word, I will raise my banner upon the mountains to lift up. Nisoyen means a test. Nisoyen also means to lift up. Every Nisoyen is God trying to lift you up to raise you to a different plateau. The Teferish Shloyma, the Radomska writes, Yaakov Avinu tells Lovan, ah, what a vart. Lovan switches the younger sister with the older sister, right? Rachel with Leah. Rachel, the Zayar says, was Almadiz Galia, the revealed world, the conscious world. Leah was Almadiz Kasia, the unconscious world. Much deeper than Rachel. So Yaakov tells Lovan after he made the switch, and Yaakov became aware of the switch. It's says two words. Lomarimi Sonny. Why did you deceive me? But the word Rimi Sonny has another meaning. What does it mean? It comes from the word Laharim. What does Laharim mean? Truma. What does Truma mean? Arim. I just said Arim Nisi. Laharim. Tarima Tome Akarka. What does Laharim mean? Lift up. Lama rimi sonny, Yaakov says. Why did you lift me up so high? You lifted me up. You elevated me. Because to have a relationship with Leah, I have to go into a different space. I mamish have to challenge myself. I have to open myself up to my subconscious. I have to get to know who I really, really am. Lama rimi sonny. Very, very heavy. And that's true in life. I'm expecting Rachel. Suddenly, Leah comes into my life. I could say, I was chipped, I was deceived. I was duped. And forever I am blaming. It becomes the blame game. I am the victim and I'm looking who to blame. 
There's another approach. I was uplifted. Every challenge is not just an obstacle. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for elevation, for growth, for metamorphosis, for transformation, for renaissance, for rejuvenation, as in J-E-W. I have to qualify, especially when I'm talking to righteous Jewish women. This is not saying that when there's an abusive situation, chas v'shalom, it's a mitzvah to stay there and say, ooh, this is wonderful, I'm going to get a lot of alam haba, and the worse it is, the better it is. That's not what I'm saying. Of course, everyone has a duty and obligation to themselves and their loved ones to get out of challenging and difficult and toxic and scary and horrible situations. Of course. Everybody should always try to live the most successful and serene and calm and tranquil life. But nonetheless, even in the best of lives and even in the best relationships, there are moments that we suddenly become aware of toxicity that I can't always control and I can't always get rid of. What do they say, serenity prayer? You have to know the difference between the things you can change and the things you cannot change and that ability to be able to know the difference. Right? God grant me the serenity to be able to understand the difference, to accept that which I cannot change and to be able to change that which I have to change and I can change. That's the Lomari Misani. People often ask a question. Why should I await Mashiach? Why should I look forward to the coming of Mashiach? Why should I anticipate the coming of Mashiach? Yes, I know life has challenges, but at least for many, life has so many wonderful blessings. Why should I look forward to the coming of Mashiach? Why do I say three times a day, for your salvation, for the ultimate redemption, I await all day. And I want to share a little story that at least gives it some perspective. There were two brothers. These two brothers were brilliant composers. They had an ear for music, and the music that they produced impacted the world. People were enthralled by their heart-stirring music. Their music was transformative. It was electrifying, and it touched souls in the profoundest way. And then tragedy struck both of these brothers. An illness deprived them of their ability to hear. Can you imagine the tragedy? Their life was dedicated to write, compose, produce music, and now they could not even enjoy their own music. One of the brothers decided, this is not his future, it can't be his future. And he left the world of music, and he chose another vocation for himself. But the other brother tenaciously held on to his musical vocation. Because for him, music was not just, you know, a way to make money, a job, a career, a way to become famous or to get attention. Music was his life. It was his soul. It was his passion. So he continued to write the most stunning music. It enriched people the world over, even though he himself could never, ever enjoy it. And he would not stop. And people sometimes shared with him how foolish that is. Like, you know, get into something that you can really appreciate and enjoy. This is just not for you. And he said, no, no, no. One day, one day I know I'll be able to get back the gift of hearing. I'll be able to hear my music. 
Even till that day, my job is to fill the world with music. And then the day came. And the cochlear plant, the cochlear implant, was developed. And both of these brothers, once again, were given the gift of hearing. And the brother who left the world of music and went into real estate or whatever he went into was certainly thrilled by this great gift. Now he can hear. But the other brother, when he received this cochlear implant, this wasn't just a nice, sweet, extraordinary gift. Suddenly, for the first time, he can hear and enjoy all the music that he has been writing and producing all these long decades. Suddenly, all the music came to life in his soul as he continued to produce even more beautiful music. Friends, this metaphor, based on a teaching of the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek, describes the contrast of Golos and Geula, exile and redemption. You see, when the Beis Hamikdash, the holy temple, the holy temple stood in Jerusalem, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, dwelled among the Jewish people in a manifested way. We can hear the music of Yiddishkeit. We can hear the music of Torah reverberating through our planet, through our cosmos, through all of the universes. We could sense the music in every carbon, in every offering, in every mitzvah, in every good deed, in every tefillah, in every prayer, in every act of kindness, in every word of Torah that we learned. We sensed the music, we felt the music, we sung the music, which is why an integral part of the daily service in the Holy Temple was great concertos that the Levites conducted. They had many vocalists and many musicians, and this was a daily part of the service, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And then came a churban. Then the temple was destroyed. The Beis was decimated. This wasn't just a physical destruction of a physical entity. It wasn't only the exile of the Jewish people into the diaspora. It wasn't only the end of political and military independence. And it was not only the tragedies and losses that the Jewish people endured. There was also a spiritual transformation in our world and in the world of and in our in a spiritual transformation in our lives and in all of humanity, we became deaf to the music. We couldn't hear the music anymore. So some gave up. They chose another vocation. But the faithful sons and daughters of the Jewish people, and we should say especially the Yiddish mamas, the Jewish wives and the Jewish mothers and the Jewish daughters tenaciously held on to their musical vocation, they knew that they will not stop writing music, and even though they can't hear it, they knew that every tefillah, every prayer, every time they lit a candle, every time they gave charity, every time they said a kapitol tehillim, every time they learned Torah, every time they davened, every time they did a mitzvah, music reverberated throughout all of the worlds, transforming the worlds, making it into a divine, holy, sacred space, even if our ears could not sense it, could not sense the depth of it, the godliness of it, the holiness of it, but they did not stop writing the music and they knew that one day a spiritual cochlear implant will once again give us the gift of music. 
when Mashiach comes, what's going to happen is we'll be able to hear all the music that we created and we continue to create through every mitzvah, every good deed, every moment we choose to allow our souls to triumph over our trauma, every moment that we choose that our goodness and our idealism and our resilience should triumph over our toxicity and insecurities and fears. The music of Einoid Malvade, the music of oneness, the music of harmony. We know that one day, very speedily in our days, we will, the world will receive the cochlear implant. Our eyes will open, our ears will open. And we'll see the music vibrating through every leaf and every blade of grass, every beating heart and every droplet of rain, every grain of sand and every flake of snow, every bird and reptile, every insect and mammal, every fish and every single living organism, organic matter and inorganic matter, and of course every human being we will suddenly see the music of the divine vibrating through each of us and through the world. We'll be able to hear all the music that we created during the thousands of years of Gullahs till this very moment. To live with Mashiach means to intensify that music, to be able to start opening ourselves up to hearing the music, to seeing the music, and to know that it's our choice every moment to be able to live in a world of music or in a world of chaos. It's a choice that you have to make and I have to make. Thank you very much. I think we'll take some questions, okay? Questions are coming in. Let me take a few questions. What are some practical daily tips of seeing beyond the physical to seeing the godliness in everything? Excellent question. I think the first... And the first step in this is the brachas that we say in the morning and the davening. When I wake up, I can right away take out my phone and start checking texts and clips and emails and get stressed about this and that. And I'm already, I tuned out. As I said, we wake up, we say, Moidani lefanecha. We do whatever we have to do in the morning and then we open a siddha, we say brachas. What are the brachas? Brachas is tuning into the miracle of nature to the miracle of life, to the miracle of existence. And then we daven. And everybody, however you daven and how much time you have, even a few minutes, but that's a time to meditate on this very truth. This is the ultimate, this is one of the greatest purposes of davening. Davening is not just to ask for things. Before we get to Shemayin there's a whole introduction which helps us tune into who we are. That's what all of the Pesukah de Zimra are about. So take a few minutes to meditate on these truths. And it will it will change your day. Next question. What do you recommend when a child wants to come home from yeshiva or seminary and the rabbi disagrees or the other parent disagrees because they can't take the situation anymore? The question is a little vague, so I I haven't heard enough details to be able to say anything substantial, so I'm just going to give somewhat of a generic and a little bit of a vague answer, which of course then has to be applied. Of course, the biggest question has to always be what it would be the best thing for the child. The the purpose of institutions, of all the yeshivas and seminaries, is to be able to help the children, to be able to help our youth. The youths are not here to serve the institutions. The institutions are here to serve the youth. The rules are here to help the children. The children are not here 
in order that there should be rules. So it's very important not to get stuck in the structure, but to really understand what the child needs. Structure is very important. Structure is very, very good. I think Churchill said we create structures in order to facilitate our dreams, and then we become prisoners of those structures. So it's very important to always tune in what would be the best thing for the child. If ultimately the best thing for the child, for the girl or for the boy, or for the teenager, or the young woman or young man is to remain there, so then that's what we try to do. If it's not really good for them, for whatever reason, so it's important to navigate another route. Now, it's sometimes painful, we just don't want to deal with the headache. So it's important to take a deep breath, not to take it personal, and to realize that we were given by Hashem a mission to be able to help each of our children to the best of our ability. There are three partners in a marriage, Mami, Tati, and Hashem. Mami and Tati have to do their partnership, but they have to realize that God has to do His. So we do what we can, and then we turn to God and say, and ultimately it's your child. So it's don't take it personal. Don't get stressed about it as though you're the sole master of the situation. But try in a very calm way, in a loving way, in a compassionate way to tune in to what would be the best thing for the child and make a decision based on that. Now, sometimes I just got an email from somebody. Their daughter was caught in a seminary in Israel or somewhere with something that she wasn't supposed to have, and they expelled her and some other girls from the school. And the parents are writing to me how, you know, the school is at fault and they did the wrong thing and, uh, and uh, their daughter is not at fault. They don't want to accept her back. A lot of, a lot of disappointment and a lot of resentment. And I wrote back to them, you know, you may be right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the name of the school. I don't know the rules of the school. I don't know what happened. I don't know. You may be 100% right. You may be 100% wrong. You may be 70% right. You may be 70% wrong. You may be 99% wrong or 99% right. I don't, I really don't know. But never allow your ego to take over. In other words, sometimes I have to bite my tongue and do whatever I got to do simply to be able to achieve what I want to achieve. You want your girl in this school, it's good for it. Do what you have to do. Apologize, make a resolution, ask for compassion, whatever it is, put the pressure you need to put on. Don't be right. Be smart. It's very important in life. You know, I maybe they have to change the system. Maybe there's a lot of things. I don't know. But it's important. Don't get caught up in a in a petty game, like, I'll prove them wrong. The most important thing is, keep your eye on the target. And the target is that your child should be happy and fulfilled. Let's see if any other questions came in. Okay, so let me conclude by wishing all of you and the entire Chizuk mission, I know you now have a few days of, uh, of the Chizuk mission virtually with so many women in lieu of the physical trip to Israel. You're doing a spiritual trip to Eretz Yisrael, and I hope that this mission is going to be extremely and exceedingly successful with uh, a lot of bracha and atzlacha. Thank you to uh, Rabbi Tzina and Rabbi Feld for all of the incredible work you're doing. And uh, again, a special dedication tonight to Rucham Chayef Frum, Abbas Rabdaif Pinchas Bistritsky for the yard site. May she be a good tabeta for the family and the Jewish people. And may all of us be able to celebrate always happy occasions together and to be able to cherish every moment and every opportunity to live Enoid Mulvadai and to see speedily the manifestation of Enoid Mulvadai in our world with the Gula Shlema Bimheira Biyamenu. Amen. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.